Oh, man. I'm Bruce. I am an alcoholic. And it's always exciting for me to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I'm glad Neil called and asked me to come down here and speak. Um, I've heard about this conference ever since it got started, but I've never been here, and, uh, and I've always wanted to, and so now I am. Um, I forgot my socks. <laughs> I'm wearing my wife's socks. <laughs> That's, my God has a sense of humor, and, and he knows how to keep me humble. Um, so there's that. I talked to Skip uh, before we got started. I, you have to excuse me, I have a little cold here. But uh, I asked him how long he wanted me to talk. So I guess I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, and then we're going to break for lunch. <laughs> Now, the last time Skip called me to, to come speak for him, he, he said uh, he was kind of stuck. He needed a speaker for Uniontown. And I said, well, I'm in Indiana. And I meant the state of Indiana. I drive a truck for a living. He said, oh, well, never mind. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm coming back into town tonight. I mean, I had a date with my, my wife who's sitting back there, Beth, wonderful member of AA. She helps a lot of women. Thank you, Beth. And uh, so let me call her. I'm supposed to have a date with her. She's all right with it. We'll come up down and uh, and that was a lot of fun. From the very start, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous was exciting. I don't know about anybody else. Uh, the only drunk I really know about is me. And. Um, I was absolutely hopeless and helpless the day before I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I got there, I'll tell you a little bit more about it as we go along here, but I got there and uh, there's a room about this size, maybe a little smaller than this, there's about 40 or 50 people in there. And I'm all dressed up in a three-piece corduroy suit because, you know, I didn't have any ego or anything like that. <laughs> but I didn't know what you wore to one of these things, and I, I didn't want you to think, you know, I'm some drunk or something. <laughs> so I showed up there, and uh, and here in, at the front table, I thought this guy was president of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a guy I hadn't seen in a couple of years. I used to drink with him quite a bit. And uh, he shouts out over the top ahead of 40 people, Bruce, how you doing? It's about time you made it in here. I wondered where he'd been. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. I never went looking for him. <laughs> kind of the way we drunks do, you know. I've been sober six months. I was walking down the main street in my own town. Now, I've been sober six months. This guy comes walking out of a bar. I used to drink it all the time. He said, Bruce, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. <laughs> six months ago, dude. <laughs> um, but that's how it was when I was drinking, you know. Time just went. 
I don't know, I was in the same bar stool in the same bar night after night after night. And uh, seasons changed, I guess. I don't know. I didn't really look outside that much. Huh. Um, tell you a little bit about my first drunk. There's, there's two drunks I really like to talk about, my first one and my last one, because the ones in the middle are all kind of a blur. And if you didn't know how to drink unsuccessfully, you probably wouldn't be here. So You know how to, how to drink and fall down and stumble and puke. Any pukers in here? <laughs> I was a puker. Oh, I love to puke. <laughs> Only thing I can't do as well sober as I could drunk is puke. <laughs> Anyway, I was 12 years old. I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, uh, outside of a little town called Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. I live there again now with my wife. Uh, we moved back there a couple of years ago. Uh, my closest friend was a quarter mile down the road, and he was four years older than I was. And um, I just didn't have a clue, you know. I, I plopped down on this planet, and it seemed to me like all of you had gotten an owner's manual, and you'd read it, and you know, you'd been at the big stadium meeting with God before all the children are born, and He told you, "This is how you go to kindergarten and play in the sandbox and get along with everybody else." And and, uh, and just as He got done saying, "And now you know all about life," I came back out of the bathroom. <laughs> So I kind of got here on this. Well, I was born feet first, they tell me. So, you know, that shows you I didn't want to face reality from the very beginning. And uh, I'm wandering around, and, and you all seem like you know how to get along with each other and, and uh, have stuff to talk about and, and games to play, and you knew what the rules were, and I just didn't have a clue. And when I was 12 years old, my friend um, said he and, and the other neighbor kids had gotten a case of beer. And they were going to sleep out in the neighbor's barn and um, drink it. And would I like to come along? Well, it took me a couple hours to convince my parents that sleeping out up at the Anthony's farm would be a good idea. And uh, I finally promised my dad I'd do something for him the next day. I couldn't tell you what it was, but if he'd let me go. So they let me go, and uh, got there, and they had a case of 16-ounce Colt 45 malt liquor. Uh, I, I was a curious child. I didn't know what this stuff did. I had seen people drink because my parents had a party every New Year's Eve, and uh, I saw my mother drink a little bit. My dad never did. And uh, I was curious. And I got my hands on that cold 45 malt liquor and I took a big drink of it. And it didn't taste like soda pop, like I was expecting. But I drank a little more and a little more. And uh, before I got halfway through that can, I was amazed. I knew a new freedom and a new happiness. I didn't regret the past. Here are people in economic insecurity just left me. 
I suddenly realized that Colt 45 mall liquor could do for me what I couldn't do for myself. <laughs> it was just, it was magic. I don't know how to describe it unless, and you probably have, or you wouldn't be sitting in here. But unless you know that insecurity and that fear and that terror and just being afraid of people all the time, and to have that go like that was just miraculous. And I knew one thing, and that thing was, I wanted more. And I don't just mean the rest of what was in that can. I wanted more. People used to say, don't you think you've had enough? I want too much. What do you mean enough? So, I did. I, I was supposed to get three cans of beer that night, and there were, somehow there were two left over. And I had my three, the two left over, and half of my buddies. Um, where the big book talks about the phenomenon of craving. I didn't know it when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't until I'd been sober for a little while. But I can remember that day. And I remember that feeling. And I had that feeling every time I drank. And that feeling was, I want more. You know, people I love and care about, I'd push them out of the way to get another drink. Um, I was the kind, I'd just walk away. You know, I'd go out with a group of friends, and halfway through the night, I'd just disappear. And they didn't know where I went. Most of the time, I didn't know where I went. Until I, I found out where I ended up. But That's just the way I drank. Now, I didn't start off with a daily drinker at the age of 12. As a matter of fact, the next day, these guys, as I said, they were older, they were neighbor kids, and, and it's a small farming area. Everybody knows everybody, and, and they don't want to get in trouble. So they're trying to keep me from getting sick, and they made me puke that night. That's when I got my start on my puking career. <laughs> and the next morning, I was just green, sick. Oh, God, I've never been that sick in my life. And these guys are giving me raw eggs and Alka-Seltzer to drink. Before I go home. I didn't ever want to be that sick again. I went home and I couldn't do what it was I was supposed to do to help my dad. I went to bed and I stayed there all day and about five o'clock, Dad comes in my room and he says, Bruce, how much did you have to drink last night? And there was no point in lying about it, you know. He, he had me. So I told him, and he said, Bruce, are you ever going to do that again? And I meant this. I meant it as sincerely that time as any other time I ever said it. And I said, no, not as long as I live. I'm never going to drink again. And uh, I didn't for a while. Um, it's a couple of years, I guess. But in the meantime, my mother had cancer from the time I was seven, and she died when I was 14. And just before she died, my older brother had come over, and he was looking after us while she was in the hospital for the last time. And he had this Kodak film container, gray with a black cap, and... Inside it was this green leafy substance. As Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a drunk. I'm not talking about being drunk, but but I was a curious child, and and uh, 
we filled the pipe up and smoked some of that green leafy stuff and, and again the magic happened uh, and I wasn't sick the next day so I pursued that with all the vigor of a drowning man uh, for the next several years um, my mother died we left the country and moved to the city and I moved to Pittsburgh and uh, went to a private high school for drug addicts <laughs> My dad didn't know that. I don't think he'd have been rolled up in there. He didn't know the truth. But, um, as it turned out, all the kids that went there had been kicked out of every decent school in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and one day I was at a friend's house and, and uh, we didn't have anything to smoke. And he said, well, let's... Let's mix up some screwdrivers. My dad's got some vodka. We'll make mix up some tang and, and we'll drink that. And I said, nah, I don't want to do that. I'll get sick. He said, ah, oh, come on. I said, okay. <laughs> I was right. I was sick the next day. Um, and I had this little job at the school I went to where I'd run the elevator in the morning. And... Uh, it was a hand-operated elevator, and above our school was a Wheeler School for Business for girls. So I'm running this elevator, and I'm sick, and the thing goes like this, you know. And these girls are getting in with all this perfume and stuff. And like, oh, God. But what I realized that day was that if you're going to drink, that's part of it. And I accepted sickness as a part of drinking. And it was okay. I mean, to get that feeling of peace and and comfort and ease that the, book, the big book talks about that comes from taking a few drinks. At that time, that was the price I had to pay, and it was worth it. And as my drinking went on, the price got greater and greater and greater, and it was always worth it. It was always worth it. Because, you know, if you'd asked me what's serenity, I'd have said, two to five minutes, 20 minutes into my drinking. That's what it was. That's when I was at peace with the world. And, and uh, Cliff Roach talks about that. And I, I've always been able to identify with that. Um, so where was I? Oh, yeah, running the elevator. Yeah. You know, I can't drink Tang to this day. <laughs> Makes me nauseous. I can't drink vodka anymore either. <laughs> so it went on, you know, it went on. We drank, I drank, and I, I drank, and I did a lot of drugs, but, but by the end of my drinking, drugs, most of them I let go because they just got in the way of my drinking. Um, reefer made me too paranoid. <laughs> I'd smoke a joint when I was drinking I, I couldn't talk to anybody and the booze didn't do what it was supposed to do which was make me the life of the party um, I've heard lots of lots of good talkers stand up behind these microphones and, and tell stories about you know moving geographical cures to New York City and Los Angeles Chicago the Bahamas halfway around the world I went to places like York, Pennsylvania, and Binghamton, New York. 
Binghamton, New York was my first geographical cure. That's, that's really when I switched over from drugs to alcohol. That's, it was in the uh, late 70s, and they were cracking down on drugs, and it, they were hard to get, and booze I could get anywhere, and the drinking age was 18, and I was 18. And uh, so I, I made a career of it. Somebody asked me to borrow one time to borrow some money. It's like Thursday or something, and payday wasn't for another day. Pulled a $10 bill out of my pocket, and I said, I'm sorry, that's all that stands between me and sobriety. And that's the way I felt about it, you know. Play pool. I used to play pool. If I had $2 in my pocket and we were playing for drinks, I couldn't lose. I couldn't lose. I'd stitch your ball. I'd do anything. I'd cheat. I'd do anything. <laughs> if I had 20 bucks in my pocket, I couldn't win. <laughs> Just didn't have that kind of desperation, you know? <laughs> desperation. That's a wonderful thing, desperation. Desperation saved my life. Um... Early on, I've already told you that, that, that booze was the only peace that I ever got. And uh, I didn't drink that long. I drank like eight, nine years. But toward the end of my drinking, all I'd get was a blackout. And a blackout was good, you know. If, if, so I'd wake up and there'd be those four horsemen, tear, terror, fear, bewilderment, and whatever the other one is. Um, just ashamed of myself all the time and uh, get a few drinks in me and I go into a blackout and, and I don't know if I cared or not but I know I wasn't wasn't really conscious and uh, and that was a good thing I kind of got the feeling that my drinking was getting out of hand um, it wasn't possible for it to occur to me to stop drinking, though, because that's the only thing that ever worked. What did occur to me plenty and often was not get as drunk as I got on a regular basis. And I tried everything I could think of to do that. I tried everything to not get drunk except not drink. My favorite was drink Coke until 11 o'clock because I had this theory that you couldn't get that drunk between 11 and 2. Well, you can, you just have to work at it. <laughs> About, um, oh, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks before I came to you wonderful folks, I had met this woman in a bar, and I was bad for women too, that was my other thing. Um, if you were nice to me, and especially if you slept with me, that was it. I was in love. This was forever. No. I dropped out of college one time to move in with this woman and her three kids because she came home with me one night. And, uh, about two weeks later, she left and took off with this guy in a truck to West Virginia and, and left me standing out in the rain somewhere waiting for her for four hours. But that's, you know, that's how it was. If you were nice to me, I was in love. Because, you see, I was always looking for something out here to make me okay in here. 
I didn't have any idea how to be okay in here. I had terrible nightmares when I was a little kid, and, uh, and I, I, I'd try and stay awake as long as I could, just three, four years old. And I had this fantasy that I lived on this island and had a dome over it, and nothing could ever get me, and I had everything inside that I needed. And I was there all by myself. And that was what I thought was peace at four years old. And I don't know why, because my parents loved me. I knew they loved me. I grew up in a, you know, middle class home. There was no abuse. Well, it was dysfunctional because I was in it, but um, there was nothing really wrong there, you know. Other than my mother being sick, there was nothing really wrong. And uh, so anyway, it just plain didn't occur to me to stop drinking until it quit working. You know, it really just quit working. I met this girl and um, met her in a bar one night, and I kind of liked her, and she seemed to kind of like me. And, and uh, we went out a couple times, and we were talking on the phone one day. And she, by this time, I'm I'm worried about my drinking. I really am. And she she asked me this question. She said, "What do you think's fun and exciting to do?" And she had this whole list of stuff, you know. I thought about that question for two days. Because I wanted to have a whole list of stuff. Only thing I could think of was drink. I mean, there was other stuff. There was fishing and camping and, and bowling. But that was all just a reason to drink. It didn't have anything to do with the activity. So I met her one night. And uh, she was a little late. And I'm sitting at the bar and I'm drinking whiskey and I'm trying not to get drunk before she shows up. So I, I thought I'd just sip my drink, you know. <laughs> it wouldn't get back to the table. <laughs> I'd be sipping again and then... <laughs> she gets there and, and we're talking, we had a good time. And... Uh, we're talking about going dancing, and I'm looking at my watch, and it's 1.30. And I'm thinking, how am I going to... i got to get rid of her. I sent her on her way so I could finish the job. That was, oh, I don't know, late February, something like that, 1984. Now, I told you I like women. I always have liked women. I still like women. That's, that's, that's my thing. Whatever your thing is, I don't care. It's up to you. I don't... Okay. St. Patrick's Day, 1984, was a Saturday. It was a full moon. And I'm one of those that thinks stuff's just a little better on a full moon, you know. So, so Friday night, I'm in training. Some good Scotch Protestant, you know, so i got to keep up with the Irish Catholic holidays. Uh, so I'm in training there Friday night. And... Um, 2.30, they're trying to get us out of the bar, and I'm sitting next to a guy that I drank with. You know, I, I knew him. I sat next to him many times and drank. And uh, he said, well, I got some whiskey over the house. Why don't you see if you can get some other people and come over to our house, my house and we'll have a party. Sounded like a good idea to me, so I staggered out of that bar, up the street through the bar where my car was parked, saw a couple of women there and said, Hey, you want to go to a party? 
For some reason, they didn't want to. So I went myself, you know. And, and uh, yeah, he did have whiskey. Um, if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, you guys will hear a story somewhere along the line about waking up next to Frankenstein's sister. <laughs> or you gals, Frankenstein himself. I, and I don't, believe me, I don't ever want to offend anybody, but um, St. Patrick's Day 1984, I woke up in bed with Frankenstein himself. <laughs> I knew it wasn't because there was another bed in the house. Um, unfortunately, I didn't completely black out the night before. I knew one thing, and, and what I knew was I needed a drink, and I needed it now. And I went and got one. I went and got several. I went and got many. Um, I remember the first two. And the next thing I know, it's 1.30 in the morning, and uh, I came to in a bar with a drink in my hand in the middle of a conversation. It's not the first time that had happened, but it hadn't happened many times. Um, no idea where I'd been all day, no idea where what I'd been doing. Uh, I happened to recognize the two people I was talking to. One was a girl I went to high school with, and the other was my sister. Um, the reason my sister was there, in, in the doctor's opinion, it talks about sometime after a time the alcoholic can no longer differentiate the true from the false. <laughs> my sister was there because apparently I'd been thrown out of about five bars that day, and I'd called her from every one of them and yelled at her for calling the bartender before I got there telling him not to serve me. <laughs> she hadn't done that, but... <coughs> I was sure she had, and I guess she'd gotten a little concerned and come out looking for me. I was one of, I was also a great one for making phone calls at four in the morning. Somebody I knew in kindergarten, you know. <laughs> hey, remember me? Anyway, she managed to get me out of that bar. I, I, I remember buying a six-pack and uh, with a check. In those days, bars took checks. That was wonderful. I used to say I bounced so many checks at my favorite bar. And I, when he caught me, when the bartender called me on, or the owner of the bar called me on, I used to say I quit drinking for three weeks. It wasn't until I sobered up for a while I realized I just quit drinking in that bar. <laughs> I'd go and give them a little money and then go down the street and drink. But anyway, St. Patrick's Day. The next day we were supposed to have a birthday party for my sister. She dragged me out of there and I passed out at her house. And, and, uh, and I went the next day to my family home where we were supposed to have a party for her. And I couldn't go. I was just as sick as I was the first day I drank. And uh, I ended up in the same bed as the first day I drank. 
And for the next three days, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't look at anybody. I was more ashamed of myself than I'd ever been. I was more alone and depressed. And, and You know, before that, I had always believed that the values that my parents taught me as a child took over when I was in a blackout. It kept me from doing anything I wouldn't ordinarily do. And uh, that wasn't true anymore. And I was, it was obvious to me that I, I'd do anything. I was capable of anything. And I was probably going to end up in jail one day, not know why I was there, you know, because of something I did in a blackout. I have no idea and not be able to defend myself, and there I'd be for the rest of my life. When I got real depressed, one of the things that I've always done is write. And so I got out a notebook and I started writing. And I didn't know that was part of the program, Alcoholics Anonymous. I just was writing. And I, I wrote down um, my resentments about my mother's death. And I wrote down some other stuff. Um, and I got around to what to do with me. And it seemed to me, you know, we hear in this program a lot about the moment of clarity. And I had my moment. It seemed black and white clear to me that there were two things I could do. One was move to California, not tell anybody where I was going, get a job in the pornography industry, and get myself to that. And that seemed like a good idea. Then this other thought struck me. And what struck me was, never drink again as long as you live. And that seemed like a real stupid idea. <laughs> and right behind that thought came another thought. And the next thought was, you can't never drink again. As soon as you feel better, and you will feel better someday, as soon as you feel better, you'll drink again. And I knew that as well as I knew my own name. I just knew it. Deep down in my soul, I knew it. Four years earlier, my father had been dating a woman from Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, one day I sat her down and made me tell her all about what it was like to be a drunk, just in case I ever needed to know. <laughs> she didn't sound anything like me, you know. She had hide her bottle, not share it with anybody, drink in the morning before she went to work. And... Uh, but she had planted a seed in my head. And what I did, I was writing all this stuff down in the notebook, and, and what I did was I wrote a little prayer. And all the prayer said was, Lord, I must have some direction. And I didn't believe in God. God and I parted company when my mother died. It wasn't a conscious thing, it's just what happened. But the next day... The phone was in my hand. I was dialing Alcoholics Anonymous. The guy answered the phone. He said, uh, I guess it was a woman answered the phone. She said, Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, yeah, I think I want to go to one of your meetings. She said, well, they're all closed. <laughs> she said, give me your number. I'll have somebody call you back. So I gave her my number. Some organization this turns out to be. <laughs> Ten minutes later, this guy calls me back and he said, you have a problem with your drinking? And I said, 
yeah, I think I want to go to one of your meetings. He told me where it was. He said, you want me to come pick you up? Being as humble as Hitler, I said, no, I'll get there under my own steam. <laughs> so the meeting was at 8, 5.30 in the afternoon. I'm getting dressed up in my three-piece corduroy suit. <laughs> I had $10 in my pocket. I had a gremlin. Remember those? AMC gremlin. Had a string running out through the window to pull the windshield wipers up. <laughs> time I got rid of that car, it had a purple door, the rest of it was green. <laughs> but it was a car, and I'm, I'm driving it 20 miles from my house to where the meeting was. The whole time in there, I'm thinking, well, do you really want to go to this meeting, or I have $10 in my pocket, do you want to go get a drink? Already. I said, Bruce... Go to the meeting. If you really don't like it, you don't ever have to go back. So I went to the meeting. And as I already told you, my friend was the president of Alcoholics Anonymous there in the front. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, I felt at home, you know. And I, I did. I, I'm one of those. I was so desperate. And I was so fortunate to come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where somebody that night told my story. And he, you know, this guy, the details were different, but he felt like I felt, and he thought like I thought, and he made the same brilliant alcoholic decisions I made all the time. And uh, he got to where I was that night in my life, and then he kept on drinking another 15 years and ended up living under a bridge drinking out of a paper sack. And God reached out through that man that night and touched my heart, and he said, Bruce, you can stop drinking right now if you want to. Or you can go on and, and end up right where this guy did. And uh, that was enough to set the hook. It was enough to keep me coming back. In, in my second meeting, somebody shoved that big blue book in my hand. Actually, after that meeting was over, I'll, I'll tell you this one. I really want to get sober for a little while. But, um, after that meeting was over, another guy I went to high school with got like right up in my face and he said for 90 meetings go to 90 days or for 90 days go to 90 meetings and I said something and he said for 90 days go to 90 meetings and I said something else and he said for 90 days go to 90 this went on for like half an hour it's <laughs> probably five minutes but you know how we are <laughs> he said you'd be at my house tomorrow night 7.30 told me where he lived he did not give me his phone number so I couldn't call him and tell him I wasn't coming uh, it set the hook. I went to meetings. I, I jumped into Alcoholics Anonymous with both feet. And I'm so glad I did. I mean, I didn't have a clue. You know, I'm going to these meetings, they're talking about stairs and elevators, I don't know, something. But I knew that you were happy and you were comfortable and you were smiling and you were laughing and you were having a good time living life. And I could tell you knew how to be yourself. 
And that's what I wanted. That's why I drank. That's what I always wanted was just to be all right, just being me. I didn't have a clue. Always thinking, always thinking about what you were thinking about me. And if I wasn't thinking about, if you weren't thinking about me, I was thinking about why you're not thinking about me. <laughs> and you know, I took that book home and I opened it up and I, and I started reading in the doctor's opinion and, and the doctor's opinion was me and then it said, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem. And that was the root of my problem. And I knew that. I could see it. And you had a cure for that. You had 12 simple steps. Not easy, maybe, but simple. And the directions were clear, and they were written down in black and white. And you said, all I have to do is follow these steps, take these actions, do these things, and I will get what you have. And you'll be happy to show me how you got it. And if I didn't want to quit drinking, that was my business. There was a door. You're not going to follow me around. You don't care. You care if I if I care. You care. But if I don't care, you don't care. I mean, maybe you care. I know I care. But but I'm not going to chase anybody. I've done that. You know, we've all done that. You get sober. You think it's the greatest thing in the world, and you're pulling people off bar stools. I was. <laughs> And we can get them here, but they eat the donuts, drink the coffee, and go get drunk, you know. That's the way it is. That's what I did. Said in the book. Help other drunks. I had a gremlin full of drunks. They ate the donuts, drank the coffee, and got drunk. Yeah. But I stayed sober. I stayed sober. If you can do a thing wrong in Alcoholics Anonymous except drink, I've done it. I've been doing it lately, you know. I drive a truck for a living, and... Um, for a long time, I drove cross country and I was out for two, three weeks at a time. And I go to lots of meetings out on the road. And uh, then I was laid off for a while and I was at home. And that was great because I was sponsoring people and going to meetings every day. And, and, and this is in the last couple of years I'm talking about. And, uh, and that was great. And then I, unemployment ran out and I had to go get a job again. <laughs> and um, now it's driving sleep. and. and and I, it's not that I can't get to meetings, it's just that it's a big hassle. I gotta stop somewhere, look them up, find a place I can park the truck, unhook the trailer, go go to the meeting, then, and I'm always in a hurry, you know, I'm always running behind. So, so I don't get to as many meetings. Now I'm getting to like two meetings a week and, and, and ask my wife, I get cranky on two meetings a week. I get cranky when I'm not talking to guys and sponsoring guys and, and trying to be helpful in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm so grateful you guys asked me down here to do something for a change. <laughs> it's nobody's fault. It's my fault. You know, I'm the one that's responsible for my own sobriety. You know, we get a lot of in our part of the country. We got this thing they call drug court, where they're sending them to us all the time. You know, once in a while we get one that stays sober. Once in a while we get one that really wants it, and and that's wonderful. And you know, there's nothing like the magic in Alcoholics Anonymous when you get a guy or a gal comes in looking like I looked when I got here. <sighs> there's no light. No light in their eyes. They're just dead. Just an empty shell of a human being walking around. And, you know, you get a hold of them sometimes. It's usually somebody else. But I get to watch. Once in a while it's me, but not often. 
and you talk to them and you show them that there's 12 simple steps that if they will take these actions and do these things, they come around and they start to make friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they start to do the work and the light comes on in their eyes. And I've had the chance to see the light come on in people's eyes. Like the light came on in my eyes. And that's the greatest gift we've ever been given. I don't know what you want more than that. I have a beautiful wife. We have a nice home. She makes a nice home for us. I make, you know, I make a few dollars, not many, enough to live on. I don't need anything more than to see the joy in the face of an alcoholic who has learned that there's a way to live. Just being themselves, just inside their own body. Not having to impress anybody or do anything other than follow a few simple rules. You gave me that, and I'll be grateful for the rest of my life. Thank you very much.